Hello, Stitchers. Welcome to Stitch Please, the official podcast of Black Women's Stitch, the sewing group where Black Lives Matter. I'm your host, Lisa Woolfork. I'm a fourth-generation sewing enthusiast with more than 20 years of sewing experience. I am looking forward to today's conversation, so sit back, relax, and get ready to get your stitch together. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Stitch Please podcast. As I say every week, this is a very special episode. And it is especially special, special. If you are a Patreon subscriber, you get the added benefit of seeing our lovely faces. And Jen Hewlett is rocking a fly outfit with a scarf that I'm sure is hers, that she made, she designed. And I'm also holding another beautiful creation of Jen Hewlett right here in my hands. And it's called This Long Thread. Women of Color on Craft, Community, and Connection. Welcome, Jen, to the program, and thank you so much for coming to talk with us about this amazing book. Thank you, Lisa. I'm so glad to be back here. Thanks for having me back. I wasn't sure about that last time. (laughs) For me, this is a huge, exciting thing to happen on the Stitch Place podcast because this is what I enjoy doing. I enjoy and dedicated to lifting up the work of Black women, And to have this book and to have you representing women of color in craft and putting our voices forward is incredibly powerful. And it's a wonderful way to use your platform. So I want to thank you for this work and for being here because of it. So thank you. So let's jump right in. Tell me a bit more about the initial idea. What made you start to consider publishing a book? about women of color in the craft community? So this all started way back in 2016 or 2017, I think, where I had told my editor over at Roost Books, whose name is also Jen, I said, you know, I feel like I'm the only person of color, woman of color, really out there publishing books, being visible in this world, but I'm not the only one. And this is a choice that I think a lot of publishers have made that they're going after. I actually had another publisher with an organization that I did not go with saying, well, you know, when manuscripts come in, I don't know the race of the person who's submitting them. So it really is just based on what's coming in. But what I responded was, well, a lot of the people that you're asking, a lot of people whose books you publish, you're actually going after them, asking them to publish with you. And so that just really started this idea. And I had wanted originally to do a book about women of color, people of color in this world. And it was going to be very like a coffee table book, beautiful with lush photography and stories and interviews. And I would be traveling around the country to do this. And a book like that has a really high production cost. In order to produce a book like that, I would have had to get a lot of people with large followings already so that the book would sell itself. So I put that aside because I kept doing the budget and the numbers wouldn't work and my editor just kept saying no. And then 2019, something erupted in the craft world, particularly in the knitting world. And then it crept over into sewing and quilting about really how white the dominant narrative of craft is in online communities, also in publishing. I brought the idea of that book back 
But what I didn't want this time was for it to be about the heavy hitters, the people that we all already know. And at that same time, I had been rereading Women in Clothes, which I don't know if you read, but that's a fantastic kind of anthology. The structure is very similar. I totally crib the structure of this long thread from Women in Clothes. I said, what if I did a survey? What if I did a survey and asked just anybody who was a person of color, a woman of color, and then we had non-binary people of color coming into to just complete this, talk about their experiences. And my editor, my publisher loved that idea. My agent, more importantly, did too. She was gung-ho to, <laughs> to sell it. And she's been such a huge champion this entire time. And so that's really the kernel of where this book in this form began. I am so grateful for that. And I wonder, what do you think the survey as a strategy brings that perhaps talking to the heavy hitters wouldn't bring? It seems like the survey, you interviewed 19 people and then you had a survey that surveyed a larger swath. So can you talk about the distinctions between what a survey result might yield? Yeah, survey results. Um, the people who completed the survey, you were one of them. Most of them were people I didn't know, people I don't follow people who might follow me. I think I had a lot of my own followers in there, but people who I wouldn't have necessarily gotten in touch with, wouldn't have known how to find. Also people who aren't online much, right? The age actually skewed a bit older than I thought it would. And that was fascinating to me. So I got a lot more personal stories from people who maybe hadn't really thought about this because they don't have an audience. And they've been wrestling with the idea of, well, I have this craft. I really love it. I always feel weird in specific spaces. I don't see anybody online who looks like me who's doing this. I was able to reach those folks who maybe hadn't spent a ton of time thinking about it, talking about it, but who finally had a place to give voice to what they were feeling. You know, my own smallish community, crafters of color, we have these conversations all the time. But if you're feeling isolated in your craft, who are you having those conversations with? You're not really having them. And then that was one of the things that for me really appealed to me about the book. As I was reading it, I just felt relieved. And I knew I wasn't the only one. I mean, obviously, I was able to found an entire organization called Black Women Stitch because a lot of Black women felt exactly as I did. But it was so heartwarming to just know that I wasn't alone. And I think that the book is a way to actually enact the process that you went through in order to build the book. That the book itself, to me, feels like community. It feels like when I'm reading it, I'm learning about Sean Kimber and, you know, who I, of course, I know she's a mathematician and I know she's a professor and a scholar. I knew all that, but I didn't think about math as a vocabulary or as a language and how that shapes her craft practice. I I wouldn't have known that. Vanessa Vargas, I believe, like she had some really exciting stories. There's so many really interesting things that made me feel as a reader that I was participating in something, not just as a participant, because I was fortunate enough to participate. Y'all can read my survey in there. But it was nice to know the context. And that's why I think this book is so valuable for encapsulating the time that we find ourselves in right now. And I think that this means that the book itself is an artifact of history that you have uniquely and generously documented. And not just in a beautiful book. It's, this is a beautiful book. The illustrations are lovely, y'all. They are really, really nice. One of my favorite ones is what you did for the Sewing Justice Sewing Academy, 
where you talked about some of the blocks from their block of the month club. And I was like, yeah, I remember those blocks. And it just feels kind of like you're walking into a hug. <laughs> That's how I felt reading it. And I'm trying to show y'all, this is how I mark up books for work. I haven't written in it yet because it's still new to me, but I'm pretty sure the pencil's going to come out. If you're not a Patreon subscriber, you're not seeing like all the tabs that I have for the places I wanted to ask questions about. So it's really a generous offering. Now, I want to talk a bit about audience. When I was reading the introduction, it seems as though the book might have two audiences. And I believe that, was it your friend, was it Ebony? Who asked you, who is the book for? She asked me, it's a question that any writer has to address at the outset of the writing process. And my answer hasn't, hasn't wavered in the 18th months since I submitted the proposal. And you say, my primary audience is a diverse swath of crafters and artists featured in this book, people of color who are doing this work. It's for us, but it's also for folks who are also not us, right? And that I thought was very interesting. Can you talk a bit more about the dual audiences? I'll just start out by saying that there are movies that I love that are not made for me, but that I will watch and I will enjoy. And I think that when you flip that coin, a lot of times the dominant culture thinks that if something is not made for them, they won't enjoy it. They won't consume it. They won't watch it. They won't read it. They won't listen to it. Right. And I also felt that we were in this very particular moment of time where the dominant culture was, and by that, I mean, white folks and white women specifically were receptive to these kinds of stories, to our stories that are not about pain and suffering and degradation that are just straightforward stories about our lives, our craft. And I thought, no, that's also an audience. Those are also people who need to be hearing this, need to be reading about this, because they may think this book is not about them and not for them, but really they're the ones who are creating the environments in which we exist and are often excluded from. And they may not consciously be doing it, there are a lot of times where I've been in situations and I know that people aren't consciously doing or saying the things that they're doing or saying until I call it out. And it's that moment of, oh, right? A lot of times people are very defensive and say, oh, but, and I talk about this in the book where there was one occasion where I called it out. Everybody was super uncomfortable. I left and they continued the conversation. So if I in this book can engender that without people of color being hurt in the process, I am happy for this book to serve that purpose. I think that it is incredibly effective on those two fronts. And I cannot speak as a white person, but I can speak from my experience as a Black woman and also as a literary scholar. So one of the things that Toni Morrison talks about when she was an editor at Random House, Toni Morrison, before she became, she was always who she was, but before she became super famous as a writer, she was an editor in the early 1970s, late 60s. She edited Muhammad Ali's autobiography. She's like, she's, genius editor, brought us Gail Jones of all people. I mean, she's incredible. But one of the things that sparked her writing was she felt that when she was reading African-American literature, that there were writers who were writing. She said she was reading the books, feeling like they were writing to someone standing behind her. They were addressing a white reader behind her because they were explaining things that didn't need explaining. And so it was clear that though the book was written by a Black person, it was kind of directly targeted to and approaching the needs of a white reading public, which she found very off-putting for good reason. I think that this book is an example of allowing 
our voices to speak directly to our experience without any expectation of having to filter it or to translate it or to code switch. And I think that has to do with your process as the interviewer. And I remember in the introduction, you said you did not want to get in the way of the stories. Can you talk about how your interview process was able to invite more contribution from those folks you interviewed? Did you feel like you stayed out of your own way? So some backstory, I used to do HR when I first became a working artist, or even before that, I was doing HR and I was doing a lot of recruitment and I would do hundreds of interviews a year. I also worked in private high school admissions, but that's a story for another time. So I am in many ways a professional interviewer. And what I like to do is to get people to tell me about themselves. I don't want to sit and ask a lot of questions. I want to ask a question like, so tell me about your childhood. And you'll notice that's almost That's what I started with almost every single time. So in that interview process, the person starts wherever they want to start. And I wanted people to start where they wanted to start. I wanted them to tell me the things that they wanted me to know. And I had this experience at the dog park this morning where a man whose dog was also there. I asked him a couple of questions and he just went loose and told on himself. He told me exactly who he was. And I don't want to get too far into it, but he told me exactly who he was and what he believed. A fairly short conversation because I did not get in the way of it. I just let him talk, which, you know, people love to talk. I'm one of those people too. And then I would just jump in with questions like, oh, so tell me about that. What do you mean exactly? I'm not sure. And he would explain it. In this process too, that's how I approached it. Tell me about your childhood. What was that like? You know, and I remember, I think it was Stephanie Lee called out. That's a broad question. And I said, answer it however you'd like. I sense a trick. What is happening? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Even when I would interview eighth graders for high school, I would tell them, I'm not going to ask you anything you can't answer. This is about you. I'm not trying to trick you. But the other thing, I talked about this with friends when I first started interviewing folks. And I noticed that the interviews were getting really deep really quickly. And I think it's because we were talking about race, that there's no way to skate around it. There's no way to talk around it when you're speaking to another person who actually knows, maybe not the specifics, but the generalities of what you're talking about, because we too have experienced it. And so a question like, tell me about your family, almost invariably led to, my dad's from here, my mom is from here, I grew up here. All of that backstory, which reminds me of when I was in college and would take the slave narrative class, right? Like that's where it always started. Not that these are slave narratives. Right, of course. But these are first person narratives of people basically building their life out for you in 2000 words. That's not a lot of words to build out an entire life, but you have managed to really capture, I think, something about that own individual sensibility and how that connects to the production of their art. And that's something I find incredibly striking. And I think you should be really proud of. Well, thank you. Now, I will also give credit to Dr. Barbara Christian, who was my professor when I was in college. No way. Seriously? Oh, my gosh. She was fantastic. Oh, my gosh. That's where we we read oral histories. And then she had us conduct oral histories, too. And that was the very first time I have ever done an oral history. I talked to my auntie, my auntie Maudel, who was the oldest of my granny's seven siblings. I think there were eight of them that lived to adulthood. And we just had to talk to any one of our relatives who was a generation or two older than us and just ask them about their lives. And so when I started writing this book, I remembered 
that interview with Auntie Maudel. Now, my Aunt Jerry, who was the last of my granny's siblings, died just last year. She was probably in her late 80s, early 90s. But this was like, this was a story that I had never heard. And she was just talking about her mother, about my great-grandmother, Elna. I really appreciate that because what I love about it, and of course, Barbara Christian, I'll include some links, y'all, in the show notes in case you don't know who that is. But she's a pioneer in Black women's studies. And she was actually good friends with my mentor, Nellie McKay. That's who I studied with in graduate school. It's just to think about and to call these women's names, you know, because we do have a lineage of Black women scholars that I believe it's incumbent upon Black women to name. I just think that's just really important. So I'm glad to know that. Wow, what a beautiful fingerprint to have. Oh, that's so wonderful. Now, in thinking about the, the stories that you've collected, are there any that stand out to you? And of course, you can't, I'm sure you can't privilege or prioritize all of them. But there were some that I just was like, I found really striking. I'm going to turn to the one, one of the ones that I thought was, and this was Tanya Anguiniga. Yes, Anguiniga. Yes, Anguiniga. The title of her piece is Art Made On and Between Borders. And this is someone who apparently went to high school. No, all 12 years. All 12. Okay, so, so she lived in Mexico and she border crossed every day mm-hmm. to go to school in the U.S. to have that kind of childhood. So someone was like, oh, people are saying, oh, this is great to experience two cultures. And she says it kind of sucked because it takes a long time to cross the border. And every single day she had to do that twice. It's the vulnerability and it's the exposure and it's the fear and it's the challenge of developing friendly relationships in school where you can't visit each other's houses. It's just incredible. Can you talk a bit more about if were there other stories like that or anything that jumped out at you as, oh my, this is incredible? I feel like they were all incredible, but I think the two that really struck me the most of the interviews that I did are the two youngest folks in the book. And that would be Naomi Glasses and Raven Dock. So Naomi, I think, you know, if you're a person, if you're a Black person in this country descended from enslaved folks, you can only trace your family back so far. Right. And for Naomi to come and say, I am the seventh generation of weavers. This is the origin of our family's weaving story is being interned in quite literally a concentration camp set up by the U.S. government for the Navajo. And this is what the women and her family did to get themselves through this trauma, right? And this has been passed down through generations. And that she also just decided, graduated from high school and said, this is who I am. This is what I want to do. If I'm going to stay on the reservation, because she hadn't grown up on the reservation, if I'm going to stay on this reservation, I need to have some kind of livelihood. So why not weaving? And to have that real clarity and sense of self at 18, 19, is amazing. Now, Naomi is now a TikTok star because she's also a skateboarder. (laughs) So you can find her. She skateboards throughout the reservation. (laughs) Oh my gosh. And then the other one is Raven, who dropped out of high school because she let her counselors, not even let, I don't think this was an active, this was not an act on her part. This is someone going through depression and being young and impressionable. She believed her counselors when her counselors told her, you should drop out now because you're not going to graduate and you'll just be embarrassed when they don't call your name at the graduation ceremony. When in reality, she would have graduated anyway. She would have been just fine. And what they wanted to do was they wanted to keep their the school, high school wanted to keep its grade A rating. So the counselors had told a lot of the students who were not doing well, who were mostly students of color, 
in this affluent, dominantly white school to leave. And she came to embroidery because she needed an outlet. And to listen to her talk about her work and the reasons behind it and her process, it's like listening to someone who has gone through four years of art school because she has the vocabulary and the depth of thought behind it. And her counselors did her a disservice. They did. did the world a disservice by trying to squash her and push her out. You're listening to the Stitch Please podcast, and I'm talking today with Jen Hewitt, author of This Long Thread. Jen has also graciously offered a free copy of the book as a prize for Stitch Please podcast listeners. So go to the Black Women's Stitch Instagram page and see the details for this giveaway. The Black Women's Stitch 2020 wall calendar is bigger and blacker than ever. Not only is the calendar about 15% larger than last year's calendar, it still remains jam-packed with so much wonderful history about Black women's history, sewing history, and activist history. There's also a wonderful new feature in this year's version, and that is the quarterly pattern release. At the beginning of every quarter, you'll find original images from Black women artists. The patterns are available as a PDF download, allowing you to resize them to the needs of your project. Order your copy of the Black Women's Stitch 2022 wall calendar at blackwomenstitch.bigcartel.com and we will help you get your stitch together. so compelling because what now we have vocabulary for the Southern Poverty Law Center has a teaching center that I sometimes work with called Learning for Justice. Mm-hmm. And they call this curricular violence. It's when there are pedagogies or things in classes that you are told that are harmful and guidance counselors are gatekeepers, period, end of discussion. They'll either open a gate for you or they'll close a gate for you. And very often students of color, especially black students, I can't say all students of color because everyone has different relationships to feeling comfortable engaging with school officials or whatever. But, you know, I I have known many, many black students who have been told that they are inadequate or that they should do this and they should not do that. And it requires a lot of forceful advocacy, unfortunately, to help turn those ideas around. And another thing I noticed, and this goes back to how I felt this kind of continuity I remember when I was in my PhD program, there was a handful. They bought a handful of Black students in so we would help each other and know each other, which was a great idea. But to a person, Jen, to a person, every single one of us, Black students who were in getting master's degrees, getting PhDs, getting law degrees, every one of us had been told by a teacher in our past, a white teacher, that we weren't good enough. Every single one of us. And here we are getting PhDs and law degrees, and we were, but we're not good enough. It's amazing to see how that type of thing shows up in the craft space. 
And I don't know why I'm amazed because these are all the same people. <laughs> they're all like, <laughs> I don't know if they have like a convention to get together. It's like, how can we screw up people's lives, everybody, for this 2022, 2023 year? What's on your agenda? Are we going to take away voting rights? Are we going to stop them from teaching things at schools that make us feel uncomfortable? Honestly, it's like, did they pass out a manual? Because how is everyone having these same experiences when we're all of different ages and different racial identities? And I think it was Vanessa who was saying that she will not go to any quilt shop in rural Florida. And I was like, I don't blame you. We have these things that we love, things that we enjoy, but oh no, I'm not going to that, I'm not going to that knitting shop. I'm not going to that yarn shop because the last time I went, this happened. Or for some reason, they think that I'm here to, I don't know, shoplift a skein of raw wool. I mean, I don't know what I would do with such a thing, but okay. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting to think about how what you've done here is to bring people together. And I think in bringing people together in all sorts of ways, the constellation of stories that you've assembled really radiates so brightly. It's just really quite beautiful. And so I really want to congratulate that. I absolutely do. I wanted to ask about the 19 interviews. I know, for example, you were talking with with Sean, for example. Do you find that there is a distinction between folks who study art formally and those who are kind of, as you were saying about the previous person, who are kind of learning on the go? Were there any kind of responses about their craft? In terms of the people I interviewed, I think there was only one art school graduate. Okay. Two, Kenya and Tanya. Tanya came to art school differently. I don't know if that came through in the interview, but she went to she went to community college first, right? And then she went to University of California, UCSD, San Diego. And so I think that there is definitely, and we talked about that in our in our interview too. There's working class, there's immigrant guilt around being an artist. So already you're coming at it from a different place versus Kenya, who grew up middle class, who's from a family of artists whose dad just wanted her to do her thing and be who she was and was completely supportive of that. Oh, and Rashida, I forget, Rashida went too. But I think of this group because, probably because they're people who've kind of wandered and moved from thing to thing, there wasn't a real strong sense of difference between how they thought about their work and how people who didn't go to art school thought about their work. Not that I can think of um, or how they spoke about it. I mean, Kenya and I have been friends for years and Kenya can just talk. (laughs) You need to interview her at some point. She's fantastic. Yes, please. Um, Introductions, thank you. I don't know. I don't feel like there was a really strong difference. I also think, you know, to be honest, all of the people that I interviewed who were artists were all around the same age. And so we've all come up around the same time and we've come up with social media. And in many ways, our language around what we do with the exception of baby Tanya revolves a lot around talking about it publicly to the world on social media, in classes, et cetera. I really appreciate having all of these beautiful women, these beautiful stories together in one place. And I know I've talked about the isolation before, but I really feel as though what this book is doing is bringing not just evidence of the things that we have been talking about as being things that are real, right? Because sometimes you can just feel like, why am I really the only person that thinks this? Or am I the only person this has happened to? It can't be the case. And so that feels like the book itself is engendering that community. I also am curious, 
in terms of the survey results, I was looking at, you know, at some of the statistics about age, about the kind of fiber crafts and race and ethnicity, people who use it for hobby versus income. Do you find that those statistics might be useful for a marketing perspective or is it a way to show the craft industry as a whole that we are here and we are doing things and that it is really that they are being remiss when they say that, well, no, we can't find anybody. So two things. The first is that my survey was not super scientific. So a sociologist would come in here, a statistician would come in and say, you asked this question wrong. And I don't want to rely too, too heavily on the specificity of my, of the data that I gathered. There's that. But also I was able to find almost 300 people of color in the U.S. and Canada who do these crafts without me even having to work that hard to get them right, to find them. I didn't really have to look for them. So that's one thing. The second thing, though, is that there is data about this since at least 2012, and I think I cited it in the book, saying that across race in the U.S., at least, I don't know about Canada, that about 30% of people engage in some kind of hobby, some kind of craft hobby, and specifically women. And it does not matter what race you are. That number holds true straight across board, right? If you're only focusing on 130%, you're missing out on hundreds of subgroups that have 30%, right? So the data exists outside of my book. People just aren't looking at it. And what I love about the book is that they don't have an excuse. Right. This excuse, oh, it's a pipeline problem. You know, we hear this all the time. It's a pipeline problem. That's why we aren't able to publish this many more books by, you know, Black women crafters and Black women fiber artists because we don't have any of the pipeline. It's like, well, on my Instagram, I see a pretty steady pipeline of people who are doing this. So I don't know what I'm seeing that you're not. What someone told Sarah in the interview, she believed that children of color do not want to craft or do quilts. That's what she was told. That's not true. It's just, that's coming from that person's own reluctance to do anything. Therefore, there's no reason to do anything. That kind of inertia becomes part of the structure, right? And that's why things get so sedimented. That's why they look the way they do. It's been really useful to read how folks also have persevered through challenges and come out on the other side. And I was thinking about Vanessa, I keep going back to the Crafty Gemini as an example because she's had such celestial success with, you know, starting small with YouTube. And now and I, I watch them build the shop and everything and all of these great things that they're just, she's doing with her family and her husband being super supportive, but also going to Paducah and vending there and people like interrogating her, she's doing something wrong. How did you get a booth here? How did you get your booth? What do you mean? How did I get a booth? Do you think that I just like shoplifted some white lady's booth and set up all my stuff here? Like, and who are you to even police me? Who are you to ask me? Honey, they asked me here. Did they ask you? I mean, she's hilarious. She talks a mile a minute. I don't know how many thousands of words our interview was in an hour. Some people was like 7,000. Some people, it was 17,000. She was a 17,000 word person for a one hour interview. Oh yeah. I mean, the way that she talks about that experience, not just people asking her, essentially the assumption is you don't belong here. I'm not even the assumption. That is the underlying statement. That is what people are trying to tell her. She gets it, but she is not having it. And then also to have that experience of the neighbors calling the cops on her husband when he went. Oh my gosh. Well, you have to get the book to learn about this story. It's really out of microaggressions 101. No, no, not microaggressions. This is like macroaggression. 
She tells her husband, like any spouse will tell each other spouse, hey, I'm busy doing this. Why don't you run to the car and get my laptop? Because I left it in there. Go, okay, I'll go get it. 7.15 a.m. She has him go outside. And three minutes later, she's getting a phone call. Hey, there's a sketchy guy outside. Are you outside? And then I'm telling you, Jen, when the cops showed up, my heart sank. But I knew it was okay because the story was in the right. <laughs> right. That this was a happy outcome, that her husband did not get shot, that he was not beaten within an inch of his life for being in a suburban Airbnb with his wife at a quilt conference. Like, right. that was not going to lead him to his death. So that's why I was able to continue because I knew that the outcome was going to be good. But why was it necessary? Right. It's just another reminder that even when we're doing our regular everyday quotidian thing, a craft based creative job, you know, selling a special ruler, all of the things that people just do in this industry, that when you have the racism that's in our community, that is such a feature of it, just pressing down upon you. It really is. It's so interesting the way that people will just tell on themselves. Can I tell you a funny story related to that? that actually has to do with the book too. In 2019, you know, when I started working on this book, I'd been talking about it publicly. And I went to an event, just a little crafting event. And there were a bunch of women from the area around. It's actually in the town where I live now. And one woman started grilling me about it. And she said, so tell me about your book. And I said, well, I'm doing oral histories and personal narratives of women of color, people of color who do textile arts and crafts. Well, what special training do you have to do oral histories and have you done, have you heard of such and such program? And I actually host people who are taking this art part of this program. And she just was talking about it, like in this way that she wanted me to give her my bona fides. And I was like, mm, okay, whatever. And then I was just casually responding to her questions, talking to other people. And then she finally said, so is everybody in the book going to be alive? Are you discussing people in the past too? And I said, I leaned forward and I said, because they're oral histories. They kind of have to be alive for me to be able to interview them. And she just stopped and the conversation went on with the rest of the table. And I thought, here I am telling you about this project that somebody thinks I'm qualified to work on, that everybody I'm interviewing thinks I'm qualified to work on. And you, white stranger at this event, who I've never met, are questioning my qualifications to do a project that I pitched and you don't even know what I'm doing. Listen, white stranger who gets to grill you as if she is on your PhD defense team right now. She has no involvement. And whatever she's selling, who on earth is going to ask you, are you talking to people in the past? And I'm like, is it a seance? <laughs> supposed to talk to people in the past <laughs> is that a trick question that you, who are you tricking yourself it's the discomfort I believe I can only speculate but it feels like it's the discomfort that needs to help put you in a place exactly. right I mean, exactly. you have to be in your place and you have to it's like that Arizona show your papers show your papers show me your papers where you have this qualification show me your papers where you're qualified to make me feel uneasy and all you could have done was just say nothing but instead by putting me in my place I put you in yours you know, sometimes it's very useful when that happens because then you know you who you don't have to talk to. Every right, day. exactly. But it's also exhausting. It is quite exhausting because the reverse is rarely true. Not only are they not credentialed at anything, they still don't have any problem getting attention, getting accolades, getting, and no one grills them. No one walks around Paducah or these big events quizzing people on whether they should be there or not. Right. 
And it is so unfortunate. And yet no one can fix a problem that they're not willing to acknowledge. And I can't fix the problem because the problem's not mine to fix. I didn't create it. Y'all got to work it out. Gather your people. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Get together, mm-hmm. get together, everybody. Okay. And this is another, going back to Toni Morrison again, look at you and you're amazing. Look, have me think about Toni Morrison all day. Yes, she said the same thing, that racism is a distraction. Mm-hmm. It distracts Black folks from the work and the things we're meant to be doing. And that it's white folks' problem to solve. Leave me out of it. And then she asked this question. She's like, what would you do without your whiteness? Who are you? What are you? Are you any good? Are you special? Do you have anything? You should figure that out for yourself and think about why you're clinging to that so much. I mean, really talk about putting people in their place and also not expending the energy. And that's what I love about the project. The project is not trying to dispel. It's not trying to prove anything. It's not trying to say, oh, please let us in because we're good too. It's not that. It's saying that we are here. We have been here. We are thriving and flourishing in systems that were never designed for us to do so. And that is a gift. That is a gift. And that is a legacy uh, that I believe this book does a beautiful job of encapsulating. It does. Same, same. I too, I'm going to cry. Everybody's crying. (laughs) And because it's so necessary and because we need to see and uplift each other. Right. And I think that you are doing that so beautifully here. Really and truly, you have so much to be proud of with this book. Now, tell us now, when is the release date? I know the episode is going to come out in November. So it's right around. The, is it going to hit shelves soon? Is there tour dates for events? Like, tell us what's happening on that front. The publication date is November 16th. The books are actually in the warehouse, which if anybody knows anything about the supply chain issues of the past year, if not, there was a great episode of The Daily, the New York Times podcast about the great supply chain disruption, listen to it. But the fact that we have the books, that they're in the warehouse, it's a big deal. So if you order it now, you will most likely be able to get it. But if you wait too long, it might sell out. We might have to get more. I don't know. Let's hope that happens. So the earlier, the better. There will be a handful of events, one in person in New York City at Weaving Hand, Cynthia Alberto, who is in the book, She also has an organization called Weaving Hand that we talk a little bit about, and she's going to be hosting a very small 40 people or so event. I think that Chin Wayne, who is in the book, Shanaz Khan and Brandi Harper and I, and Cynthia, of course, so the five of us are all going to have a conversation. I think I'm supposed to structure the conversation. I'm not sure what we're going to talk about. We might just get up there and talk. But be just fine. I think you've prepared enough. I don't think you have to do any prep. I think you are ready to roll. And then we'll have a couple other online events. So one with Gather Here, Virginia Johnson, who is also in the book. Yes, I worked with her. We did a modern quilt guild thing. She's so cool. Yes, and she didn't have to go on strike. So in addition to running Gather Here, she's also a costume designer for film. And she's a member of So is Shanaz Khan. And there was a, a chance that they would have to go on strike. The labor movements that are not getting covered right now are kind of amazing. It's amazing how much movement there is right now and how workers are actually fighting very, very hard for the rights and aren't really talking about it. But that's one example was that IATSE very close to striking. So we're going to have one at Gather Here, a verb for keeping warm. Adrienne Rodriguez, who is also in the book, uh, wrote about her Nana. She and her wife own a verb for keeping warm. So we're going to have an event there. 
And then Two Rivers Bookstore in Portland, Oregon, we're doing something there. And I think that might be it for this year. And the reason for that is because it's Q4 and it's the busiest time of year for those of us who own stores, sell things online. So there's only so much I can do. We might be able to pick it up again next year is what I'm hoping. And definitely today, as October 19th, my big collection with World Market was just launched. Congratulations! Yeah! They should also be carrying the book in the spring. So there might be some events around that too. We'll see. Local to here, probably the, the Northeast where I can stop in. And maybe Southern California, I'll probably have some events there in the spring too, just so my parents can come. And my, my auntie Ming, who is in the book, Ming Gihama, her grandchild, Ava, who I've known since Ava was a baby, interviewed their grandmother for the book. And so she is a friggin' delight. It would be so fun just to sit with Auntie Ming and ask her questions. And this is what you've given us all the opportunity to do. By you standing in the place and asking such beautiful open-ended questions that allow people to reveal themselves, we too get to get a glimpse of all these lives, of all these stories that we would not have had otherwise. And you get to mark tabs in your book so you can come back and look at other things later too. So Jen, this has been a beautiful conversation. I am so grateful to you and congratulations on this amazing book. Congratulations on the world market deal. Like, that's amazing. I am just so thrilled and delighted to be talking with you today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lisa. You've been listening to the Stitch Please podcast the official podcast of Black Women Stitch, the sewing group where Black Lives Matter. We appreciate you supporting us by listening to the podcast. If you'd like to reach out to us with questions, you can contact us at blackwomenstitch at gmail.com. If you'd like to support us financially, you can do that by supporting us on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and you can find Black Women Stitch there in the Patreon directory. And for as little as $2 a month, you can help support the project with things like editing, transcripts, and other things to strengthen the podcast. And finally, if financial support is not something you can do right now, you can really, really help the podcast by rating it and reviewing it anywhere you listen to podcasts that allows you to review them. So I know that not all podcast directories or services allow for reviews, but for those who do, for those that have like a star rating or just ask for a few comments, if you could share those comments and say nice things about us at the Stitch Please podcast, that is incredibly helpful. Thank you so much. Come back next week and we'll help you get your stitch together. Thank you.